So why are at least elements of the Russian left looking as if they're cozying up to elements of the Russian ultra-right? And then, after the break, why am I so important? Well, no, not really, but I will explain quite what I mean. Hello, I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow shadows. This podcast of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons like you, and also by the crisis exercise software company, Conductor. Now, apologies in advance. As you might be able to tell, I have something of a stinking cold, and therefore I may well be rather husky and not in an attractive and appealing way. But I will attempt to make sure that I switch off my mic if I'm about to sneeze or cough and not to blow out your collective eardrums. Anyway, I want to start by talking about Mikhail Razvozhaev. No, I don't actually. I want to talk about Leonid Razvozhaev, the activist in the Red Front organisation. The problem is that actually so many media outlets, Russian media outlets, seem to confuse the two. And therefore, given that Mikhail Razvozhaev is governor of Sevastopol in Crimea, uh, I was really quite perplexed when first I started to read news articles about how the leftist uh, agitator Leonid Razvozhaev was was basically running matters in Sevastopol. Probably, I think it it's going to be ru- that's rougher on Mikhail rather than Leonid. So anyway, no, we are talking about Leonid Razvozhaev. At least there is still some mention of him in the Russian media. I was actually curious. I, I did a search in English f- for any references to Leonid Razvozhaev in the last year. And all I came up with was something from something called Game Rant, in which Russia had fined Twitch... $57,000 for essentially allowing access and sort of repeating of messages from figures, including Razvozhaev. That's it. One news item. Anyway, never mind. But it, it, in some ways, it is pretty illustrative of the degree to which the Russian left, which does exist, and I'm talking about a real left, not the Communist Party, but nonetheless, it hasn't really attracted any particular attention, certainly in the, the Western mainstream, in part because in some ways they may be anti-Putinists, but they're the wrong sort of anti-Putinists. And to a degree, they have actually lived down to expectations, for reasons I'll come to. But if we took Razvozhaev, in, I mean, he basically has been a member of the leftist opposition to Putinism really since the, the late 90s. But interestingly, he actually worked within the sort of the state apparatus of the Rodina, the uh, Fatherland Nationalist Party. And then he was in the mid-noughts, deputy head of the For the Motherland Youth Union. And in, in parallel, he was a key element behind the founding in, I think it was 2004, I could be wrong, in the creation of the Youth Left Front, which in due course led to the left front. And I really want to flag up as very relevant later. So on the one hand, this is a guy who, even though very much opposed to the, the regime, 
he was involved in Rodina and For the Motherland, which we would consider to be nationalist movements, and also in the inception of the Left Front. Now, clearly, he, he was moving more in the in direction of the latter. He was, in 2012, elected a member of the Coordination Council of the Russian Opposition. Remember, this was the time of the sort of the heady days of the Balotnaya protests, when you know, there, was, there was at least some degree of hope that something could actually happen from opposition, liberal opposition, leftist opposition. And, of course, the state decided to do something about that, as you'd imagine. In October 2012... The TV channel NTV showed this film, Anatomy of a Protest 2, which was very, very clearly a, a serious hit job. And part of that was what was purported to be hidden camera video of a meeting that took place in Minsk in June 2012, in which you had a selection, you know, a whole rogues gallery of people sitting down talking about options for action for the opposition and how foreign powers would be able to finance the protest movement. And who was there? There was Givi Targamadze, who had been the Defence and Security Committee Chair of the Georgian Parliament, including during the 2008 Georgian War. There was the Georgian Consul to Moldova, there was Sergei Udaltsov, of whom more in a moment, in some ways the kind of highest profile, the hard leftist figure still around. His aide, Konstantin Lebedev, and Leonid Razvajayev. So they're very clearly setting up the idea that these figures are not real leftists. They're not motivated by any particular desire to help further the socio-economic and political development of their country. They are instead Quisling's traitors. And there was, a, a, in some ways, a not-too-subtle parallel drawn with the idea that Lenin was brought into Russia by the Germans during World War I precisely to be a destructive force. So, he was in Kiev... He was working for Ilya Panamaryov, the, again, socialist deputy and also wealthy businessman, who since then has in many ways turned right against not just the Putin regime, but in some would say Russia, in that he's supporting... Uh, I was thinking, should I use the word terrorist? I mean, in technical terms, without trying to apply a moral judgment, they are terrorist attacks of assassination and sabotage inside Russia, in opposition to the war. But anyway, at this point, Panamaryov was involved in, in, in much more, more peaceable political activities, and Razvojaev was working for him. Anyway, but uh, according to him, what happened is that Razvojaev in October was actually quite close to the Ukrainian offices of the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, because he was looking for the possibility of getting political asylum, when he was kidnapped by Russian intelligence officers. Now, obviously, this sounds like a pretty major breach of Ukrainian sovereignty. However, let's not forget that at the time, Ukraine was under the, if not Moscow-controlled, let's say, Moscow-adjacent Yanukovych regime. And certainly a thesis that was uh, aired in the magazine New Times is that, given that there was no legal basis for Razvojaya's extradition to Russia, Instead, Kiev turned a blind eye to this kind of, um, let's say, extraordinary rendition. And that, in fact, such an operation would, according to the, to the magazine, have required Putin's OK. 
And lo and behold, Razvajahab turns up in a Russian court, is charged with preparing mass riots, as well as illegally crossing the Russian-Ukrainian border. And he's tried in a sort of joint trial, hesitate to use the word show trial, with people like Udaltsov and Yebedev, in sort of mass disorders, which is how they describe the, the Bolotnaya protests. And he and Udaltsov are sentenced to four and a half years in prison, though Razvajayev was then actually released in 2017, albeit under continuing sort of two years restrictions. The interesting thing, though, is that Razvajayev had also supported the annexation of Crimea. And this is why, in a way, I'm talking about him now, because of the way that he has indeed since cropped up speaking approvingly of the ultra-nationalist Igor Strelkov-Girkin, you know, the man who, by his own account, pulled the trigger on the war in the Donbass, who is currently himself languishing in prison, awaiting trial on extremism charges. And yet he's also beginning to advance himself, not, I think, with any, as I will come to, great expectations of success, but you know, as a potential presidential candidate to challenge Putin. Now, what Razvojaev wrote on his blog, and there's been some extensive quotes, but uh, forgive me, Regarding the presence of Igor Strelkov and other not entirely left-wing political figures in the people's primaries on the eve of the presidential elections, well, he notes that these are not some kind of party primaries, but a survey of representatives of left-wing patriotic forces and their supporters about who they would like to see as a candidate for president of Russia. The survey will not have legal force. At the same time, it may well become a moral signal for some of the political elites. So the idea is it's just a question of almost, I hesitate to use the word, calling the bluff of, but certainly sort of challenging the so-called systemic as well as non-systemic opposition. Now let's return to Igor Strelkov. Is he a communist? Of course not. Is he anti-communist? Of course he is. But why then do we communists allow his presence in the people's primaries? Yes, it's really simple. We communists are the most consistent Democrats. We are for the free expression of the will of citizens, but we're not idealists. Communists were, are, and will be tough pragmatists. Today's patriots are our objective allies, both in the fight against the Kremlin brethren and against the external enemy. And he goes on, we have basically the same demands on the authorities and proposals to society. We don't want to lose Russia as a state. Patriots think the same. We believe that the authorities should put pressure on the pro-Western bourgeoisie, but we have practically no others. The patriots stand for the same thing. We are against Russia's defeat in a special military operation. Patriots are for victory. So, I mean, look, this is like the crucial thing. We are hearing, I mean, just as we have a tendency to assume, and again, this is the trouble, we, we map certain loose terms over, and we assume that left is left. Well, yes, it is the other side of the body from the right, but beyond that, there's actually a, a wealth of differences. When we're talking about this kind of Russian left, which is not the entire Russian left, but I, I have to say, I think is a very, very strong element, arguably the mainstream in the Russian activist non-systemic left. It is actually that we must remember that they are nationalists, or at the very least patriots. They are not necessarily anti-war. Again, we have a tendency to think, oh, the left, it's, it's against war. Well, unless it's a war against Israel, but then maybe that's another matter. Um, you know, we, we shouldn't assume those attitudes map across to Russia. 
There you have people who are fundamentally opposed to the Kremlin and the Putin regime, who regard it as, rightly, a corrupt kleptocracy, who are of the view that Russia needs dramatic social change. And yet, they also feel that Russia is involved in a struggle with a unified bourgeois left, a left that is dominated by capitalism and, and a kind of financial hegemonic imperialism. So the left is opposed to that as well. And interestingly, Razvozhayev actually reaches back into Soviet history for this. He says, the roots of this approach to finding compromises can even be found in the history of the Civil War, when thousands of white officers, in other words, the, the anti-Bolsheviks, white officers went over to the side of the Reds and fought precisely for the fatherland, realising that Russia was threatened with collapse and occupation by external forces. So he's recognising that many people who are in the nationalist camp consider the left to be deeply subversive, or as he actually says, that the Marxists eat Christian children in the morning. But he says, look, you know, that's, that's their problem. That's not ours. We have to go beyond that. We have to show them that we are actually their prospective allies. And so, continues or concludes, so that's what I want to say. Strelkov is white to the core. And again, when I say white, we mean, you know, monarchical nationalists and so forth. But Strelkov is clearly more noble than most of those who lead Russia today. And if Strelkov sees a helping hand extended to him from the Reds, then I think he will respond with a worthy gesture in return. Can't help but wonder, is that purely wishful thinking? Or have there already been contacts behind the scenes? Because he recognises today in Russia, society is extremely atomised. And the authorities are doing everything possible to prevent different segments of politically active citizens from uniting amongst themselves. And that is spot on. The role of the Kremlin's political technologists is not in the main to whip up support for Putin. They happily will do so where they can. But they're aware that that's a pretty uphill struggle these days. In some ways, if people are pro-Putin, they're pro-Putin, and the rest are not likely to be converted. So instead, the purpose is to essentially politically neutralise the West, to keep them atomised, to keep them divided, to keep them hopeless, quite frankly, to keep them thinking that nothing could possibly get better, so why are you even bother trying? So in this respect, Razvozhev is right, that in fact the whole point is of trying to build a bridge between left and right is also about trying to fight against this Kremlin strategy of the atomization of society as a whole and thus its political neutralization. So he concludes, please don't help the Kremlin keep their yachts and calm seas. We need a great Russia. We need another Russia. We need a fair Russia. Therefore, we need the unity of all forces capable of defending the interests of Russia. Let everyone who today takes the right positions on the main issues be present in the primaries. Let there be a Strelkov. Let there be a storm. That's a nice rhetorical flourish to end on. But again, I, I mean, it's really interesting because this is a really, uh, how can I say, not just wholehearted commitment to having people like Strelkov also within these people's primaries. And let's be honest, these people's primaries are not going to get anywhere. Nothing that happens in them, assuming they're even managed to really be, be, be held, but will in any way influence the, the mainstream political situation. 
who ends up being on the presidential ballots, what the vote result will be, and so forth. That's all going to be determined by the political technologists in the presidential administration. But nonetheless, people are trying to use it as an opportunity. And Strelkov himself, on his sort of curated Telegram feed, I mean, first kind of recognises it, but then later on says in Telegram, I've never participated in simulacra organised by the current government, and everyone knows my position well. But now there is a difficult so-called special military operation, and the cheaters are afraid of the very fact of an attempt at my nomination. My nomination could disrupt their plans to hold sham elections with the whipping boys prepared by the current government, the candidates being conditional patriots and conditional Western liberals, and the only winner already known in advance. Therefore, I see the point in participating in these elections. Even at the stage of forming an initiative group to nominate a candidate and collect signatures, there is a chance to declare a gathering point for all the real patriotic forces of society. This is what the cheaters fear above all. In any case, this guarantees a failure in their quiet and comfortable swamp on the planet of the pink ponies, which is that last uh, particularly idiosyncratic expression is his notion of these people who think everything is working out lovely and so forth. So I think this is really fascinating because what we're actually hearing from the extreme left and the extreme right is something that actually echoes... I would suggest the kind of line which we've seen put forward by Alexei Navalny and his really much more moderate liberal forces, that even if they know they're not going to be able to stand, let alone win, they want to use the forms of the democratic process against the state that would manipulate it and treat this as an opportunity to, to spread the word and to try and raise the temperature of the country. So left, right, liberals, there's still this fascinating expression of, even in these extraordinarily dark times, with massive levels of repression, but nonetheless, I think it's fair to call it hope. Hope that something can happen. And particularly for the left, I mean, it's even more surprising when you see what's actually been happening of late. Think back to the 2021 state Duma elections, when the communists got about 19% of the vote. 19%. 19%. Okay, not that much, but still enough to be able to feel that there was some, some life in the, in the party and some degree of connectivity with society as a whole. And at that time, even though right at the top we had Gennady Zyuganov, who is still this kind of leftist zombie animated really just, just by the emanations of the presidential administration, but nonetheless, within the party itself, there clearly were signs of a willingness to try and connect with society. They were supporting local protests, even ones with with no direct kind of political role, against construction of a landfill at at, at Shears, for example, in in Harkangelsk. Quite a lot of, of ecological protests, in fact. And they were very much opposed to the pension reforms of 2018. Massive rally in Moscow, I remember, and particularly a role for the Moscow Communist Party chief at the time, Valery Rashkin, who you know, had his connections with, with Navalny, was very much behind a lot of the protest initiatives in the capital. So, you know, there definitely was, was a sign of someone actually who was quite powerful within the party, but nonetheless being much more radical in the sense of willing to challenge the Kremlin. And you had all kinds of, you know, regional 
particularly, I would say, yes, regional parties and regional deputies and so forth, willing to actually speak out. I mean, for example, in, in Saratov, you had Nikolai Bondarenko, who had this sort of YouTube channel with something massive, like one and a half million subscribers, who was very much, you know, using that as a basis to, as he was thinking, calling out the misdeeds, not just of the local administration, but of the Kremlin behind them. People like that. What happened after the elections, though? Well, clearly, the Kremlin itself got the message. So there was a campaign of arrests, harassment, and generally trying to squeeze out those elements within the Communist Party leadership who might think that being in the opposition meant that you should actually, ooh, should I say, oppose the government? On, in October, Zyuganov had written an open letter to Putin complaining about the fact that so many communist uh, members were, were being detained, that protest meetings were being broken up and so forth. But even then, supine to the end, Zyuganov framed this not as stop doing this, but, Mr. President, please use your powers to stop local officials from overstepping the mark and doing this. You know, again, we, we still see this attempt to maintain the good czar, bad boyars um, dynamic. And as for Rashkin, who frankly Zuganov may well have been happy to have seen taken down a peg or two, as I talked about in, in a, a podcast a long time back, you know, he himself was... I wouldn't say framed, because he probably did do it, but nonetheless, he was arrested on illegal hunting charges. Think Something that happens widely that so many people within the elite don't bother uh, observing anything like the, 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 the rules of the game. The whole point is, again, the system enjoys its elite being corrupt and criminal, because it means that they provide ample opportunities for them to, to squeeze it when necessary. Anyway, so he was arrested with an elk that he, sh he shouldn't have shot in his car. He claimed that it was a provocation, that he just had found it and was bringing it to the authorities or whatever. He was charged, but as a Duma deputy, he had parliamentary immunity. But lo and behold, what happens is that the uh, Duma authorised his prosecution. You know, uh, Valodin, the speaker, very much kind of mobilised that. And Rashkin was, was duly convicted and given, a, I mean, a three-year suspended sentence with two-year probation. But still, the point is that he was found guilty. The Communist Party learned its lesson. And although there are still elements within the Communist Party that one can genuinely believe to be on the, on the left, shall we say, the party itself, certainly the leadership, seems to have once again res become resigned to its role as one of the actors in Putin's whole theatrical sham political process. And I must say, it must be quite a problem for Russian leftists to cope being in not just in the presence of a communist party that is anything but, but also in the shadow of a system which for 70 years claimed to the mantle of socialism while actually being a deeply abusive and often thoroughly tyrannical state capitalism. And there's also you know, very little scope for what we could think of as the masses. Uh, often very acute uh, assessments from leftist historian and political commentator Ilya Budraitskis. He put it that main position, the, main, the main problem with the position of the left is that it provides no account of who is to be the subject of the political shift towards this socialism of theirs. 
They cannot be talking about the masses, the organised hired labour, because that possibility has been eradicated in Russia. All public political life, including the freedom of assembly, has been destroyed. Strikes have ceased to be a phenomenon. Russia's society is in a maximally depressed and humiliated state. Well, I do think he's actually being a little bit sweeping there. There is still, even now, some civil society. Interestingly, we actually very recently had had some small protests in Moscow about families who wanted their demobilised soldier, fathers and husbands and so forth, come back home. So, you know, there, there, is, still, there is still movement. Um, there are still strikes as well. And interestingly, we, we can't forget the degree to which actually the internet does provide new venues and channels for agitation. But nonetheless, I think his perspective is understandable. And in some ways, it's the usual challenges of how do you agitate in a police state? Just as in late Tsarist Russia, it's a system that in some ways forces radicals either to become revolutionaries, to really actually want to just tear down and not reform the system, or just to give up. And maybe this helps explain quite why the Russian left is so unlike the West's. And in particular, it's not so much about the economic model that they want to bring to the country. And certainly not identity politics and decolonization and the other kind of things which are at the moment very much kind of leftist uh, topics du jour. Rather, it's this much more inchoate sense of justice denied and by extension the importance of punishing the unjust that often makes the struggle much more important than the envisaged outcome. You know, to, to be a leftist in this system is precisely just simply to be aware that the system is bad and be willing to try and do something about it. Now, some have apparently turned to anti-war sabotage, for example. I mean, as I mentioned, you know, people like Ilya Panamaryov, who is essentially now encouraging you know, anti-government, but also anti-society activities in the name of Ukraine's eventual victory. But I'm not really convinced that one can see any kind of real ideology in that, more a kind of ethical embarrassment. Again, it's this moral statement. It's essentially not, this is the vision that we want to create, so much as we are not willing to accept this bad thing, and we will struggle against it. And in politics, that's much more likely to see the kind of street fighter leftism that, for example, Udaltsov, Sergei Udaltsov, a man who's been in and out of detention, you know, constantly, I said, more about picking fights, I would almost suggest, with, with the state rather than advancing much of a cause. It's worth noting, I remember some, some years back, drinking with some Amon, some riot police. And in the, in the course of the discussion, it became clear that basically everybody around that table, at some point or another, had been involved in a detail that was arresting Udaltsov. But what was even more striking was actually that they had a lot of time for him. I mean, these were not, let's be perfectly honest, sensitive intellectuals. And they certainly didn't have time for Navalny and the like. But Udaltsov was one of them said, you know, think about Udaltsov, you know, in fairness, and it's the first time in a long, long era that I've actually heard this word being used positively, Udaltsov... He's a Bolshevik. There was that sense of, you know, he's ballsy. He's willing to actually, you know, put, put his, definitely his skin in the game. But that's the whole point. It's about the fight, arguably, rather than the outcome.
And hence, I think, the importance of this red-brown convergence between left and right. Because much the same is often true of the nationalists. Look, some favour a much more statist economic model, like many leftists. Other nationalists, though, more of them, favour an essentially liberal free market, like many Russian leftists, although they would probably add a bit more of a social safety net and the like. But in the sense that they have to be connected to the narod, the masses, they're also prone to similar stances on, for example, Crimea. I mean, both Udaltsov and Razbozhaev welcomed its annexation. Didn't stop them being sent to prison, though. And even to a degree, we can see this with the war. I mean, Udaltsov has also been supportive of the invasion. You know, after all, for years, Russian flags have also been a feature of leftist and anti-government protests for a variety of reasons. I can't imagine a leftist march in the UK waving the Union Jack. So what we see, therefore, is, for want of a better word, a militarised leftism. And in part, that's because exactly Russia can't be allowed to lose, otherwise it'll just get sort of basically financially colonised by a, a bourgeois capitalist West. But also because of the very strains and stressors that that will actually put on society. That this conflict itself becomes a radical challenge to the regime, and one that could well actually push the country towards some kind of, for want of a better word, revolution. This feels a lot like the so-called fascistification strategy that was adopted in the 1970s by European leftist terrorist movements, groups like the Brigadier Rosse in Italy, the Baden-Meinhof gang in Germany. They knew that they weren't going to actually be able to just topple the regimes as was, because they felt that the regimes had successfully used what the philosopher, communist philosopher Antonio Gramsci called hegemony. In other words, had managed to convince the workers that their interests were the same as those of the bourgeois states. So what was needed, the terrorists reasoned, was to use so much violence as to force the state to, to rip off the mask, force the states to demonstrate their essentially fascistic authoritarian tendencies, and then the bourgeoisie would be unmasked, the proletariat would wake up to what was going on, and then perhaps you could actually get some kind of real movement towards revolution. So in some ways that's what we're also seeing from the left and the right. They see in this war a political opportunity, one to align themselves with the interests of the masses, to show their patriotism, but also to push something that they think will actually bring the regime itself to the point where it, it fragments, it collapses, or it, it so signally fails that there will be a political opportunity for what are otherwise currently very marginalised forces. Now look, of course, there are some figures who fit much more recognisably into a kind of cuddlier Western leftist model. You know, in particular, I would mention the 65-year-old Boris Kagarlitsky, who was a dissident in Soviet times and is a dissident today. In 2022, he was designated a foreign agent by the Kremlin. And then in 2023, he was arrested, being sort of charged of justifying terrorism. And as, as, to the best of my knowledge, he's still languishing in prison, awaiting a, a trial and inevitable sentencing. But the point is, this aspect of the left, I would suggest, is frankly much less powerful and influential and really cleaves to the sort of Navalnyite liberal 
wing, you know, which let's be face let's face facts, you know, ranges from essentially economic liberal, what we would actually regard as as, as pretty sort of conservative um, forces, you know, who believe in a law-based state but essentially want to you know, unshackle the market. In some cases, they're quite libertarian, all the way through to to soft left. I think mean, you know, the Navalny movement is a very broad camp. But at the moment, that movement precisely is not just a broad camp, but also one that has essentially been pushed out of the country. So this is something I think to be to watch, whether under the relentless pressure of state repression, the street fighting left and the anti-Kremlin right, which after all is disproportionately strong within the security apparatus, are going to be fused together into a, well, maybe red-brown, above all, angry and populist resistance movement against the Kremlin. I honestly don't know, and quite frankly, find that prospect quite scary, because although I can only despise Putin and his cohorts, but nonetheless, I can't help but wonder if what we'd end up with is, with, is something like what Karl Marx himself predicted in the 18th Brumaire of Louis Bonaparte, which is that if you have a revolution in a country where society is not really prepared for it, you end up with a regime that is every bit as repressive and regressive as the old order, but which has all the passions and energies of revolution. And in many ways, I have thought this was actually a, a brilliant uh, foreshadowing of Stalinism. But it could conceivably... And I, look, I, I will cling to my customary optimism and hope not. But nonetheless, one has to recognise facts. This could conceivably also manifest itself in a post-Putin Russia. That we see not a Putin 2.0, not even necessarily just some kind of military warlord, but precisely actually a grassroots movement that is genuinely revanchist in a way that Putin has not managed to inspire the Russians to be today that is absolutely kicking against a global order as well as a national order that they think is unfair and unjustified, and above all, is angry. Well, that's a lovely place to pause, and I really must go and get myself my customary lemon tea, and then we'll have a shorter second part of the podcast. Just the usual mid-episode reminder that you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. Its corporate partner and sponsor is Conductor, which provides software for crisis exercises in hybrid warfare, counterterrorism, civil affairs and the like. But you can also support the podcast yourself by going to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks depending on their tier, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter at Mark Galliotti or on Facebook Mark Galliotti on Russia. Now, back to the episode. So, like I said, I had no idea I was so important. Apparently, according to some Russian media outlets, I am the, the avatar of the West, channeling the, the secret views of the Western elites. All nonsense, really, but let me explain. There's been quite a bit of coverage I've encountered uh, of pieces I've written of late, particularly in Spectator and the Sunday Times including some covering, for example, 
concerns about certain Ukrainian tactics, particularly relating to the intelligence services and their campaign of sabotage and assassination in mainland Russia. And in this, I'm hardly alone. I mean, in many ways, most recently, it's been triggered by a piece in the Washington Post that, in my opinion, very much had the, the, the signs of being something that had been okayed within the American administration. And in fact, I, I got into some sort of trouble from some quarters about that that claimed that by saying anything that was questioning Ukrainian tactics or highlighting tensions between Kyiv and some of its Western allies, I was providing aid and comfort for the big bad Russians. Now, I can recognize and respect that perspective, but it's not mine. That's not what I'm setting out to do. I'm not setting out to either shill for Kyiv, nor indeed booster for Moscow. As far as I'm concerned, at the point at which we an abandon analysis for advocacy is not just the point at which we actually set ourselves up for all kinds of disappointments and misunderstandings, but it's also the point where as an individual you're embarking on that slippery slope that eventually leads you to become a propagandist. You know, a liar. But anyway, it, the for me, the interesting thing about this, the Russian coverage, was precisely these desperate attempts to obviously, in most cases, just simply pick the little bits that fit their own narrative. So, you know, I might write an article which says, well, as in one in the Sunday Times today, that says, look, in many ways, Putin is having his best month since the start of the war. In that, at present, at this very moment, stars are aligning for him. But on the other hand, we have to realise that this is just a sort of a temporary moment. All wars have their cycles, their ebbs and flows. And it just happens to be that, that this this month may well be is a good one for Russia. Damn sight better than perhaps two, three months ago. And quite possibly a damn sight better than it will be in two, three months time. Who can tell? But the point is what happens is the Russian press will, will pick the bits that they like and they say, you know, Britain is aware that Ukraine's counteroffensive has failed, and, and such like. Much more interesting, though, I think, are those attempts that are trying to read in, uh, what they see as encoded messages. And the reason I'm dwelling on this is, is not just simply uh, as an exercise in, in hubris, though, of course, I do think I am wonderful, but rather because I think this is a, a pervasive element, which is not just about the Russian media, but also actually it says something about how the Russian state interprets the messaging, the narratives that it believes it's getting. And that's why it, it, it's worth dwelling on. And so I decided to pick on one particular piece in Top Wars Military Observer uh, on online outlet, which I'll, I'll, I'll leave a, a link to the piece in the program notes. It's in Russian, but... Google Translate does do a surprisingly good job in Russian. Anyway, the, the um, heading is, Has the West made a decision on Ukraine? Thoughts after reading Mark Galliotti's Sunday Times article by one Alexander Staver, whom I, I confess I'd never heard of. Anyway, um, it's interesting how sometimes I'm described as the, the arrant Russophobe Galliotti, and sometimes when it's convenient, the well-known political scientist, this is actually much, much more sort of neutral, uh, the security specialist, Mark Galliotti. And it basically, I mean, obviously, it first of all, highlights many of the standard Russian tropes about what's going on in Ukraine. And it's, this is particularly the one referring to my writing about the, the signs of some friction between the intelligence services in the UK and the US and, and Ukraine. And this idea that, it, that, that they, they, 
there even could be such tensions is is poo-pooed because it sounds somewhat strange given the fact that the SBU it's a Ukrainian intelligence service a security service rather has long been even before the start of the special military operation completely controlled by the West they are not under the influence but completely controlled i.e. all decisions are made not in Kiev but in Washington and London and if you happen to be in Washington and London I, I trust you knew this how in such situations Ukrainians can ignore the opinion of the global West is difficult to understand so again there, there is this attempt to once again portray the element that this is a war that is actually a war against the West and particularly those nefarious Anglo-Saxons Ukraine they're, they're just the, the, the frankly the, the helpless proxies when I talk about the opacity of Ukrainian plans, sometimes actually the West doesn't know what the, what the Ukrainians are planning, which is something that we've heard time and time again in, in all kinds of different ways. Are they trying to convince us that the West knew nothing about the attacks on the Crimean Bridge? About attacks on Russian citizen villages? Some little Ukrainian chieftain made a decision and sent drones to the Kremlin? Well, in some cases, yeah, absolutely. But the point is that when I say that in fact there is particular concern about specifically the assassination and sabotage attacks inside mainland Russia and not like the Donbass and other occupied areas, it becomes clear why the material was written. The West is preparing a springboard for retreat. Something like, we did not know about the crimes of the Kiev regime and sincerely believed that Zelensky was fighting for freedom and democracy. We were blatantly deceived. In other words, you know, it wasn't me, the horse isn't mine, and she shat on the pavement herself. I mean, a charming image, but there you go. So he asks, why did it suddenly become necessary to distance oneself from one's own fosterlings? Well, his view, it's, it is, of course, about the, the current conflict in the Middle East. And, you know, whereas, as he puts it, for a long time the West supplied Kiev with everything it could, a lot of people would, would question that. Now, frankly, it, it's clear that, in fact, America is overstretched, that it can't risk too many conflicts. And essentially that, as he puts it, the United States has lost control of the situation. So there is a big concern about conflict, about the fact that this all may spiral out of control and, and lead to some sort of you know, grand, wider, wider war. And so, to returning... To Mark Galliotti's story in the Sunday Times, it should be perceived not as a simple statement of fact, but as a proposal, as a way out of the dead end into which we have led ourselves. Yes, the material is presented somewhat allegorically, but thinking people understood it perfectly. It's so often actually fascinating that in, in the, the Russian idiom there is this notion of, you know, those of us who know, know. He presents this as something about the fact that you know, there's no way that you can avoid that the, basically the world is becoming broken into two blocks, one that is led by China and Russia. <laughs> I imagine Beijing would have a word to say about that. And the other one led by the United States. And in that context, imagine that the blocks have taken shape and now the world is divided into West and East. What's on the border between West and East? Does anyone really think that the border will have no buffer zone? Agreements are agreements, and a buffer is a buffer. It's necessary to ensure the security of both the East and the West. Those 500 to 600 kilometres, that would make it possible to respond to a surprise attack. 
And where is there an opportunity without starting a big war to resolve the conflict? This is precisely the fate assigned to Ukraine. Kilometres that you don't really care about. A kind of testing ground in case of any, he says nuances, I think he means the unexpected. I think the further events will develop exactly in the direction, the beginning of which Galliotti showed. Kiev will quarrel with the West, which will cause the response in the form of a sharp reduction in supplies and other assistance, including in the field of intelligence. This, in turn, will force Ukraine to offer negotiations and peace on any terms. Moscow will agree to this. Effective capitulation with the preservation of Ukraine, with borders along the Dnieper, which is worth noting would actually involve handing a lot more territory to Russia, and loss of access to the Black Sea. Well, loss of access to the Black Sea would also mean Odessa and so forth. So this is a very, let's say, ambitious vision. Naturally, with guarantees that it will be a neutral state. The same demands that have long been voiced by the Kremlin. That is how the buffer will be created. This is something that will suit both NATO and Russia. Well, I'm not sure about NATO and... Uh, Let's not forget Ukraine. The options for, for action may differ slightly, but the general direction is already visible to the naked eye. So he concludes, the decision has most likely already been made. Now the task of the West, or rather the United States, is to get out gracefully and to leave gracefully. Now, look, so much of this is obviously arrant nonsense. Um, it's fascinating the degree to which it just is not willing to accept that Ukraine has any autonomy and any agency, that it doesn't cannot do anything without checking everything. I mean, go back to Soviet times. The degree to which even the Soviet Union, which is always a much harsher taskmaster on its proxies than the United States, but even the Soviet Union did not actually find itself in a position in which it can control any action of whether it was the, the Democratic Republic of Afghanistan government or the Cuban government or whatever. You know, for God's sake, go and read some of your own history. But the point is, everything becomes a coded message. And look, yes, let's be honest, this is also found in those in the West who take the televisual ravings of people like Salafyov and say, aha, you know, this is what the Kremlin plans, and this is what Putin thinks, and so forth. So it's not a unique problem, but I think it is uniquely strong in Russia. Decades of information control, censorship, and propaganda have created this cultural bias towards decoding everything, even when it doesn't need to be decoded. Do you remember that uh, Kremlinological approach of trying to find significance in who stood where on Lenin's mausoleum during a parade, or what one could learn from the order of signatures on an official document? Well, Russians had to practice that in spades, and their careers or even lives may sometimes have depended on, for example, picking up on that moment in 1936 when Genrich Jagoda had transitioned from being head of the NKVD, the secret police, and sword and shield of the party, to a treasonous German spy. I mean, incidentally, I love this detail that when Jagoda's two Moscow apartments and his dacha were duly raided and searched, the official record says that they proved to hold 3,904 pornographic photos I love that precision. You know, whose job was it to count them all? I mean, couldn't they have just said eight boxes or whatever? Anyway, 11 pornographic films and 
165 pornographically carved pipes and cigarette holders. It's nice to know that he found some me time and a bit of a hobby while he was setting up the USSR's secret poison lab and orchestrating the Great Purge. But the point is exactly, so basically Russians have long had to look for messages behind the official narratives and had a very clear reason to do so. And this is actually something that's very dangerous because, look, you can find all kinds of messages somewhere, especially if you're willing to be creative. You know, human beings are great engines of pattern recognition. The danger of that, I mean, it's great for making sure that you spot the saber-toothed tiger before it jumps on you, and that's really where it originally came from. But the danger is precisely that you can find messages, you can find symmetries and parallels and patterns anywhere if you look hard enough. If you can re read some Western authors, particularly from certain think tanks, you conclude that, frankly, the West is indeed desperately eager to disengage from Kiev. Conversely, read others, and you would conclude that the West is committed not just to Ukrainian victory, but also to the dismemberment of the Russian Federation. Truth and analysis become simply a matter of how you curate your sources. So this is what's so dangerous about it. It's precisely that Russian pundits, Russian analysts, and no doubt the people who are writing, writing briefing papers that ends up on Vladimir Vladimirovich's desk are trolling around, looking for scraps of information that either say what they want it to say or that they can spin as saying it. I mean, I, think, I, I just find it fascinating the degree to which, look, I am, despite my high self-opinion, nonetheless irrelevant. I do not speak for a, a government, a major institution. You know, I just write how things seem to me. And yet, even someone like me can become enlisted to somehow provide the proof that I am presumably been briefed. I presumably have received my own Tjomnik, these little documents that the presidential administration sends out to all the editors of the main state-controlled TV and newspaper outlets in Russia, giving them a sense of what in the coming week need to be the main stories and the main lines. Well, presumably exactly. The idea is that I have some curator who has told me, look, this is what you need to be writing because we need to prepare the ground for this. Nonsense, but, but clearly powerful, pervasive nonsense because it crops up too much. However, the last point I would make is we can, on the other hand, flip the lens here. Russia does have a much, much more controlled media space than the West. And in what Russian authors and pundits claim to discern in our writings and so forth, well, from that, we may get a sense of Moscow's hopes and plans. Look, I, I don't believe for a moment that this particular article was in any way sort of dictated by the Kremlin or, or similar. No, of course not. But on the other hand, it probably does reflect an assumption, a belief about what they think the Kremlin would like them to be writing. And this certainly does seem to have been a striking uptick in articles in the Russian media predicting an imminent Western withdrawal from Kyiv and a deal which would see Ukraine neutral, at peace, but certainly shorn of the southeast of the country.
Now, I don't believe we are anywhere, anywhere near the place where that's possible, let alone likely. But it is noteworthy that Moscow seems to be trying to convince itself of this scenario. Now, one of the most dangerous things in war is to lose hope. And that's the point where, I mean, this is one of the reasons why I think actually the West needs to be much more serious about thinking about how this ends, how this conflict ends, what kind of end state they're looking for. Because I think that the lack of any clear sense, beyond just general mantras about, oh, Putin must fail and, and such like, is one of the things that contributes to Ukraine fatigue in the West, which is a very real thing. However, the very fact that Moscow seems desperate these days, certainly more so than I would say a month ago, of trying to convince itself that the West is about to basically offer it a deal. To me, and again, this, this is how I end on an optimistic note, to me, this may be a sign, it's worth just thinking about it in this terms, this may be a sign that Ukraine fatigue is indeed by no means limited to the West. That Russian official sources are also just trying desperately to whistle in the darkness and reassure themselves that, in, in, in fact, any day now, we are going to basically offer them a deal. And if it's anything like the deal that they seem to be thinking we're going to offer them, it is one that Putin could, I think, quite reasonably claim to be a triumph. As I say, it's not going to happen. And the, the point about hope is that it is, in some ways, it is sugar. It gives you a short-term hype. However, if you then lose it, you then have a tendency to crash. So it will be interesting to see. I think, I think for, for the winter period, I think the Russians are going to be feeling fairly confident because they did manage to weather the counteroffensive last year, the economy is not doing too badly and so forth. Once the muds harden, once the fighting season recommences, we may well see a, a rather sharp reduction in the amount of sugar hope that they're getting. And it'll be interesting to see how their morale copes in what will, after all, be the last stages of the presidential election campaign. Then we may well find a perfect storm of sabotage inside the country, because I imagine the Ukrainians are going to basically treat the presidential elections as a chance to basically go wild. Resumption of Ukrainian offensive operations and potential political protests or at least political dissatisfaction around what will clearly be heavily managed and heavily rigged elections. Sometimes I think, wouldn't it be nice to have a bit of a break? Wouldn't it be nice to have a bit of calmness? I don't actually think spring 2024 is going to offer me any such release. Anyway, thank you very much for listening, and now I will go and snuffle in peace. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well. <laughs>